are super really real, very well thought out conspiracy theories about assassination. My name's Nathan, your saddest walking in Memphis host. My name is Andy, you're not going to go to Memphis uh, anytime soon host. And I'm Pat, your grassy knoll host. Well, uh, we, I mean, we say this every time, right? We say it every time, like, oh man, we have a great episode, we have a really special episode, we have a really special guest. Oh, but this one is, this, this is, this is on another level. So we have a very special guest today. So this is, again, another, like, wild pull from Andy, right? Because Andy <laughs> uh, shot out an email uh, to uh, Larry Hancock. Um, we're going to make introductions to you here um, as soon as the interview starts. But there's no reason that Mr. Hancock should have said yes to this interview, but he for sure did and then was incredibly gracious both with his time and his um, expertise. And he was he was entertaining. He knows so much about this. I mean, he he was joking with us beforehand. Um, you won't hear this in the episode, but he was joking with us that, uh, oh, he has to keep some notes nearby because he just doesn't remember everything. I don't think I saw him, like, reference any notes at all. I didn't see him look down once. Right. Not once. So, like, just really, really impressive guy from a, like, a intelligence standpoint and also just as a nice person standpoint. And and lived through a certain amount of right. the historical context. Yeah. So it would be like asking us about 9-11 or Benghazi. <laughs> so we're, we're talking about um, Dr. King's assassination. And do you guys want to spend another like 20 minutes, half an hour just talking about our week and how we've been? Not really. I feel like we need to just get straight to this interview. It's so good. I don't know. I made this gumbo that you guys, oh, so good. I want to get to this interview. Hey, let's get to the interview. All right. Uh, we'll see you on the other side. Enjoy. All right. And we are joined today by Larry Hancock. He is an author of Killing King and the Awful Grace of God. Uh, he is a graduate of the University of New Mexico, where he earned his B.A. with honors, majoring in history, cultural anthropology, and education. And since his retirement, he has taken up an interest in history and acquiring documents from the Freedom of Information Act. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Happy to talk to all of you. Yeah, we, Thank we you. really appreciate it. And and so a lot of your work focuses on some, you know, conspiracies and national security type issues. Today, we're here to talk specifically about uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King. But before we dig into that, curious about, you know, why, how you got into writing about these sorts of things and, and what about it excites you? Uh, sure. Uh I think one of the interesting things at this point is that I may be one of the few authors around to whom many of these political events, political assassinations of the 60s were contemporary history. Uh, yes, I'm that old. Um, so, so they were of interest to me then. Uh, I was I remember the Kennedy assassination quite well. Uh, I was in college during both the King assassination and the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Uh, all those were very 
personal events to me. And I think anyone my age who's been through that retains an interest in them regardless. I mean, many of the people of that age are still interested in those events, even if they set them all aside for decades while they were having a career. Uh, They then become engaged with them again uh, because they remain mysterious in many ways. So for me, it really began with the fact that they're not totally history. They were contemporary. But for me, what really started me back on this track, I've always been interested in not just history, as, as you can as you heard from my major in college, but um, political history, military history, national security history. So that led me back to the political assassination. So at that point in time, after 35 year career in something totally different, which was technology and marketing, uh, I just reverted back to my history and started reengaging. But by that time, what was really different is that we had access and increasingly, year by year by year, to documents, and not just documents on paper, but increasingly documents online. One of the things that didn't get mentioned is I am a board member of the Mary Farrell Foundation, which currently houses almost 2 million pages of documents online for free access related to the 60s and 70s. And it, it was kind of stunning when we got the ability. When I started, we were getting ordering documents from the National Archives page by page and paying for them page by page. And then along came HTML and the web and the internet. And it's sort of like, okay, now we're not talking about 20 pages. We're talking about 2000 pages and we're scanning in bulk. And so the reason I insert that is that the kind of history we do now is totally different than the kind of history that could have been done 30 or 40 years ago. It's totally different than the original investigations of these crimes because we can see documents, we can see research, we can see what the FBI did. We, we can see things that nobody saw before, and that helps paint a much more detailed picture. So I, I became fascinated with how much deeper a picture than you could paint than what than was in the history books hmm. because – It's not that anybody was doing anything wrong. We just have access to data. The other thing that we have access to is data mining. For example, in regard to the King assassination, it's not that the FBI did not try to do a thorough job. One of their problems was they had no such thing as networking. One field office did its thing. Another field office did its thing. You couldn't pull up a name and cross-check it. You couldn't call Yeah, I mean. It was primitive. I mean, actually, the FBI's networking remained primitive into the 21st century. Now we can look back and data mine and see things that an FBI office in Jackson, Mississippi, should have seen that were quite relevant to its investigation. But since they didn't know it, they couldn't pursue the lead. So, Hmm. again, a a long-winded answer to the question, but what brought me into it were my contemporary interests, but what kept me in it was the ability to do the kind of history that literally couldn't be done before the last couple of decades. Wow. I mean, that's pretty awesome. And for the record, um, do not shy away from being long-winded. We are plenty long-winded as as you're in good company. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's probably not a risk. No. (laughs) 
there's a reason why we're not an hour long podcast. We we lucky if we get away with two most weeks. So, <laughs> um, so we want to be talking. We want to talk about some conspiracies today. But I think it's important uh, to talk about how you did the research for your books. Uh, we live in a world where people think that YouTube is a valid uh, research. Uh, <laughs> is a valid research source. Uh, but you do real research. So could you talk about your process a little bit? Yeah, yes. YouTube and Wikipedia are probably not a good place to start. I, I would say we start in, in three places normally on any project. I or the people that work with me. First of all, we do what you would call contextual searches. We do look at what's been written. You know, you have to start with what's been written on the subject and kind of prepare yourself. But that would be looking at YouTube or, the, you know, that's that's background. Don't ever right. proceed from there to writing anything, for heaven's <laughs> sake. I, I remember a, a history professor one time who said, you know, if you write about what was said in the newspapers, I do not want you in this class. Leave. <laughs> and, and he wasn't really bashing the media. What he was bashing was the fact that they write news stories. And to write a news story, you're restricted to what you can find in 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, which is, you know, the bare bones. It's good for news. It's not good for history. We start with a background research, but then we start going to the documents, government documents normally, government documents related to the agencies. For example, when in regard to King, you would start with the FBI documents. There are other documents. There are military intelligence documents that relate to what the military was doing covering the racial unrest and rioting in the 60s. That gives you some context. I mean, there there were conspiracy theories about the military's role in Memphis. So what you do is you start digging into, you know, you find the units that were involved, you find the orders that were issued, you find the legal directives that they were operating on. Again, all of that is context. You've got to know who was doing what, what agencies were involved, what field offices were involved, and then you can start document hunting. It's only then that you can actually start looking at their investigative work. And then that gives you leads. Uh, that the, the interesting thing is that at that point in time, which means that you're usually about a year and a half into things at that point in time, you start your lead list. Okay, here's what I'm going to investigate. And there's another list that says, I'm going to ignore this because this was obviously nonsense. Uh, so then you take your lead list and you start going to look at other sources. For example, when we started looking at two or three individuals that the FBI had looked at who were Klan members, then we started looking at other sorts of documents, things that the FBI themselves did not have access to studies of the Klan, oral histories. Some of the best information we found about the bounty offered in regard to King that we pursued came out of a Kansas State law enforcement investigation of a group called the Dixie Mafia. When we found that lead, we found out that the state of California had done another investigation. It's, it's you go beyond, but it's, it's all data. These all need to be reports that have been checked and cross-checked. And only after you've gathered all of that can you start putting pieces together. And I would say the final step, again, is in-depth oral histories. 
if possible, with people who were named or with interviews. But that's that's difficult when you're doing it 30 or 40 years after the fact. One of the things you quickly learn is don't ask anybody the same questions that they were asked 40 years ago. That Just don't even do that it, right. because of all the psychological studies and all the things that show memory problems. If they didn't right. remember it right in the first 48 hours, don't expect that you're going to learn anything 40 years later. Right. The problem is you actually may learn something, but it will most likely be wrong. Hmm. So if you do, don't write about it. <laughs> so, so that's kind of the process. And I would say for anything that I've investigated before even starting on a manuscript, even with all the data that we have now, the, the thing is now you can go through that whole process in a year to two years where it would have taken, whether you couldn't have done it before, but even then you would have been years into it. So mm-hmm. we can do it more quickly, but I, I don't think I've ever started writing a manuscript on anything earlier than three years into the research. Wow. Hmm. So how do you feel about the Freedom of Information Act? And do you think it's done equal parts of opening up government secrets to the public, but also encouraging the further hiding or destruction of documents as a reaction? Freedom of Information fights two things. It has forced out a lot of information. But more interestingly, it's made it clear what isn't there and what you're not going to get. Before, Mm -hmm. all that was very mysterious. For example, Stu Wexler, who co-authored the King books and I, uh, we submitted a whole suite of FOIA requests on various things related to the FBI about two years before The Awful Grace of God came out. We did not even receive responses to most of those by the time the book went into publication. (laughs) However, eventually we did. And some of the responses went into Killing King. Hmm. One of the reasons FOIA is FOIA is good in concept, but it generated tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of requests and literally overwhelmed the agencies. And also what we learned is you're asking people who are working in agencies say in 2010, about documents that were created in 1968. They have no idea where to look. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know what you're looking for. They don't. And I mean, in all honesty, it's a real challenge for them to find anything relevant, even if you know very specifically. It's kind of like, okay, here's the name of the FBI memo of this date from this office to this office. The challenge of them finding it is prodigious. So again, that FOIA is good as a tool. Um, FOIA also does help shorten your research because you will often get an answer that says, and this is an honest answer, those documents were destroyed. And what that really teaches you, and we've learned so much about that, is gov- uh, document retention rates. There have been laws passed in various periods of time that literally set whole dates. And you can imagine why that's true. Bureaucracy generates how much in terms of paperwork? Yeah, it's a it's a field office file. It never went to headquarters. Okay. Did it stay in the field office for 10 years? Maybe. But then the law says you clear out your paperwork. The, the only reason a lot of the documents or some of the documents that we need 
even existed past a given point in time is they were either copied to headquarters and those headquarters files are retained longer or they were pulled up in a federal investigation or a congressional inquiry. They were scooped up uh, by a church committee or the House Select Committee on Assassinations and pulled away and put in a separate set of files at NARA. And then we can get to them. But it's been discouraged. You just sort of think, well, if it was a government document, it's there. No, it was there for a while. Mm. But there, there are several tiers of document retention. So you just have to deal with reality. So, Again, FOIA is good if you understand its limitations. We, we have found in some cases we find documents. <laughs> here's, here's an entertaining thing. For example, I do a lot of work on CIA documents, and I have found that it's sometimes a lot easier to find information on CIA projects in State Department files because they got copied, and the State Department never really worries about exposing the CIA's mistakes. So they kept. <laughs> on, on the other hand, <laughs> that, that is something the CIA itself is very concerned about. Yeah, if, if you want to find out something about an agency, go to another agency. That <laughs> they all just talk about each other. <laughs> yeah, they talk about each other. Yes. Oh, the CIA I, scumbags. <laughs> oh, man. Can I ask? I, I know that Stu was really involved with um, trying to pass the Civil Rights Cold Case Records Collection Act or the Cold Case Act. And uh, it seems like he's he's a teacher that's really commendable, and he tried to involve his students in the process. That law was passed by our very good non-racist president uh, in early 2019. Uh, has has that helped? Who was that? Like, oh, oh, wait a minute, sorry. <laughs> I don't know. But like, I'm just curious. Like, I don't know where that process is. If it's helped at all, like, has that uh, made new yeah. documents available? The answer is, and this is, again, it's, it's educational, it's very educational, it's fast. First thing, you got to go through three phases. The legislation, it's, so it's a law, okay? But first of all, you have got to get an agency tasked with actually doing it and, and people assigned to do it. It's kind of like creating an investigative committee, but not in signing anybody to the committee. Right. So that, yeah, that yeah. took him... The president did sign it, but appointing people to deal with it's another story. Then after you appoint people to deal with it, you've got to get funding for it. And Stu is now, after a year and a half, in the funding stage, trying to get funds actually apportioned within you know, the budget, wow. the federal budget, to actually make it available to do that. So. He's still, I, I've kind of lost him for the last two years to any new project <laughs> because he's been, he's, he's been eaten alive by his success, you know. That's, well, that's a good problem to have, I suppose. Right. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful to people who take on that kind of work because mm -hmm. it's, it's important. It's incredibly important. So especially in The Awful Grace of God, a lot of what you put into these books deals with the lead up to the assassination, everything from 63 to 68, a lot of surveillance, a lot of death threats and things like that. Can you kind of give us some of that background picture? Sure. And, and I think that was very important to us. And it was a revelation to both of us that 
Dr. King had been, we knew he'd been at risk. Okay. And we knew that there'd be, that you couldn't have lived through that period, not knowing that, that people were threatening him. That that's, that's kind of like given, but what we did not know was that there had actually been FBI investigations of a number of different threats to King, not just threats, but actual attempts on his life going all the way back to 1964. In 1964, the FBI investigated and actually supported charges against J.B. Stoner, who was a, a radical National States Rights Party, a radical right uh, figure. Uh, Stoner had actually taken a contract to actually blow up a series of churches and kill Dr. King. And the FBI managed to actually collect data on the contract and Stoner had act, it's it's kind of amazing. Stoner had given special pricing on the contract just because he wanted to kill King so much. He reduced his price for the church bombings uh, because they would also pay for killing Dr. King. The King thing didn't come through. He did bomb at least one church. Uh, so there were attempts by various people that were actually investigated and on file. And and what's interesting about that is you can start building a a body of persons of interest who you know are not only interested in threatening this, but very willing to operationalize it. Okay, we will actually go do things. I think the first one specifically, you know, and we we go into that in the awful grace of goddess context, but the first one that began a the pattern that we identified as ending with Dr. King's death occurred in 1964. And in 1964, a group called the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, led by Sam Bowers out of Mississippi, which were viewed by the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as well as several of the state investigative groups, as the most dangerous Klan in the United States. The most dangerous because they were willing to actually go do things. They didn't just talk. They just didn't beat people up. They moved directly to killing and bombing it wasn't just intimidation. They they were deadly. And they were the people that had, um, if you've heard of the Mississippi burning killings, uh, where three uh, young civil rights workers in, in the South were, were killed. And that was done by this Klan group, by J.B. Stoner and by the Klan. And one of the reasons that we found that they had done that is that it wasn't as senseless a killing as we might have imagined, or that you would imagine by reading headlines at the time. They had become very focused on Dr. King as the ultimate way that they could bring around about their agenda. And their agenda was creating national right race riots on such a scale that it would lead to full-scale race war. These people were just not about intimidation. They weren't about blocking integration of schools. They had a much deeper agenda dealing with race war. Can I, I, I'd love to, if I could just pause you here really quickly. I, I, I wanted to bring this up later, but I, I, it just seems too appropriate to skip over now because that is something that we've been hearing a lot of in the last couple of years about a lot of these far right militia groups. Specifically um, the Boogaloo Boys. And, I, mean, I don't it, know if that's a movement that's yeah, ever come the, across the your the radar, Larry. Boys. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing so, new about any of these folks. This is the same theme 
that has been there since, I mean, it was there long, long ago, but emerged in the 60s again. It is, mm-hmm. it is fundamentally racist, but racist slash religious. There is definitely an element of deviated type of Christianity, but there is also another element basically that is pagan behind it, if, if you really want to go down that road. But these are the same people. Stu Wexler wrote about it in American Jihad, his book, yeah. which really explores that whole movement. And the groups that we see, almost all of the militia groups, the Boogaloo Boys, the Proud Boys, if you dig far enough into them, maybe not even the majority of the membership, but down at the core, the organizers, the recruiters have this agenda. It actually went away for a while during the 70s and 80s because most of those people were in prison. But if you, uh-huh. if you looked at the prison gangs and you looked at, you started developing some of the tattoos, the Aryan Nation stuff, the Aryan Nation was the bridge. The Aryan Nation was the bridge between the clans of the 60s and the Proud Boys of our century. Uh, Mm. These guys got put into jail, but they organized within jail. They started this meme. They started recruiting kids. And when the internet showed up, if you (laughs) all hell broke. Yeah. (laughs) If you look look back 10 years and you look at the young kids that went into churches in the South and did mass shootings, those guys were recruited by and trained by militias who had been infiltrated. This is deep. I mean, I don't like to get into deep state or deep conspiracy. This is a deep philosophical thing. It's not a deep state. It's a deep movement. One of my personal favorite history books that uh, that I've ever read, I don't know if you're familiar with it, called America Aflame. This is a book that talks about the Civil War, but it frames it in a different than usual context. And it really takes a look at the religious roots of that split and that the, you know, the, the divide between the Southern Baptist church and the Baptist church, which basically boiled down entirely to whether black people were human or not. And, and that is, that's why we write so much about Christian identity in, in the, in the awful grace of God in particular, because I talked about the Aryan nation folks kind of holding on to this within prison. The other place it was held on to were the communes in Arkansas and Eastern Oklahoma. And these were all quasi-religious, anti-government communes that at the core had this same view of Aryan supremacy, radical anti-Semitic Christian religion. And, you know, you can trace it all the way through the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm. You can follow it back to the communes in Arkansas and Eastern Oklahoma. It, it's been there all the time. Fact check, fact check, fact check. And welcome back to Fact Check. We thought there may be some of you wondering what these white nationalist communes are, so here's the scoop. Larry is referring to a group called the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, CSA. They were a far-right Christian paramilitary group in the 70s and early 80s, consisting of, at its peak, roughly 120 members who lived a compound called The Farm. Besides being racist and anti-Semitic, the group also held deep state conspiratorial views and referred to the government as Zog, Zionist-occupied government. 
In July of 83, CSA declared war on the U.S. government by publishing their manifesto, Attack, Aryan Tactical Treaty for the Advancement of Christ's Kingdom. In April of 85, the FBI laid siege to the farm for four days and eventually arrested the militia with zero deaths and almost no gunfire. Anyway, let's get back to the show. Fact check, fact check, fact check. And it does, it goes back to the Civil War and, and further, quite frankly. But it, we're, we're just seeing again, it, we have, Stu and I have tried to point out that it has not gone away. It never went away. It remains dangerous. And to the extent that it can recruit more effectively, it simply becomes more dangerous. And these people are tactically brilliant in terms of the way they pursue this. Sam Bowers, the head of the, the Klan, just to give you some insight in how this worked, Sam Bowers was the head of the White Knights. He was a deeply Christian identity religious believer driven out of a ministry that actually came out of Southern California. And he recruited people around himself and used them as tools. They had no idea of what his true agenda was. They were, whatever you want to call them, racist, mm -hmm. against integration, whatever, white superior. Sam really didn't care about that. And, and we, have, we know that because one of the FBI informants, uh, who was actually a minister who joined the group, finally got very close. He was in the inner circle of this particular clan, and he kept being confused by Bowers and some of the things Bowers was doing because he would go, Sam, you do this and they're going to come after us. And, you know, you're going to have the guard federalized and we're going to be in open war. Why would you? And Sam going, you just don't understand. That's what I want. I want hmm. them to come after us. I want combat. I want gun battles. I want the black community to engage with the white community in open warfare because our religion says that if that happens, we will bring about Armageddon in the second coming. Wow. Shimony hmm. crickets. I, all right. It's so he, it's and, hard. And Delmar Dennis would go, huh? What are you saying? <laughs> and and actually, and Sam wrote it up on the blackboard for him one day because it is. And, and then he said, yeah, these guys that we're working with, they don't understand this. I don't care if they do. I understand that they're just a bunch of rednecks and I'm using them for foot soldiers. <laughs> yeah, it's so hard to understand a charismatic leader using a group of racist, ignorant <laughs> people to forward their own ends. I, I don't know how I we find any sort of correlation today. How, how could yeah. we believe? Yeah, okay. Well, I said earlier that I got drawn into contemporary history. Well, to, to bring it back to 68, there was surveillance that was on MLK before this assassination. Can you speak to what their motivation was? Because it didn't seem like they were necessarily trying to protect him um, with this surveillance. So you mean in Memphis? Okay, in so Memphis. Let's, we're going to jump all the way forward to Memphis. Okay, here's what was going on in Memphis. Uh, interestingly, routinely, the FBI itself did not keep King under surveillance directly because I, I guess a kind way to say of that is, is Hoover was not really concerned about his security. Hmm. Okay. Uh, that, that's the, the one time. And in 1967, when the FBI did put him under security, Hoover had to be ordered by Lyndon Johnson to do it because there had been such a strong spate of death threats 
that Johnson felt it would be very embarrassing if King was killed. So he actually called up Hoover and said, you will have FBI agents protect him on this one trip to Alabama, which they did. Other than that, no. As a matter of fact, one of the things we learned from the FBI documents is that the FBI routinely received words of death threats and bounties on King. And the memo says that as part of their law enforcement duties, they were to share that within the local law enforcement venues. In other words, if there were a threat in Atlanta, they informed Atlanta law enforcement. They were not to inform King, his relatives, or his staff. Would you say that that's like because of previous resentments or racist feelings or general hatred? What's what's the motivation there? Specifically, J. Edgar, who, okay, backstory just a little bit further. Sure. Hoover didn't really have any particular problem with King up until, say, 66, 67, with the bus riders, the freedom riders, the integration where the violence just exploded across the South. And King took the position and and accused the FBI in print and news and on the media of not protecting those people. Hoover's point of view was that the crimes that were being committed were not federal crimes. They were local law enforcement crimes. And the FBI, that's not their responsibility. King did Mm. not accept that proposition. And Hoover took offense. Now, I'm not defending Hoover, but to some extent, King was lambasting the FBI. And when you did that to J. Edgar Hoover, you became, he was not happy with King. And and so at that point in time, he started propagandizing King. He actually set the FBI to start looking for communist links to King, which they did find a couple uh, among his contributors and, and friends and staff members. And it just grew from that point in time. The more King would talk about what the FBI wasn't doing, the more obsessive Hoover came. It it got into, you know, it's like a contest. I'm going to say bad things about what the FBI is not doing, and the FBI is going to find bad things to say about me and share them with everyone, whether it's Congress or the media or my wife. So basically, call that bad blood. All right. So there is personal bad blood between Hoover and King. And you find that all over the place. It it becomes very clear. In fact, it becomes almost silly. Some of the things that the FBI field officers are doing simply because they know the director wants to smear King. Now, okay, so that that's where it starts. And where it maybe not finishes, but one of the things that, you know, in in getting ready for this, we stumbled across an, an FBI letter to King, instructing him to commit suicide. That was done by Hoover's aide, one of his senior aides, and appears to have been, you know, basically Hoover had created this climate where you could please the boss by doing things to make King look bad, make him, and this guy really cared. I mean, they they did more than that. They actually collected tapes, sent them to King's wife, inferring that he was having affairs, The letter was written, so it got nasty. But I will say one of the things that we discovered, as much as I hate to say this, that was not a novel tactic circa 1967-68. The FBI field offices were doing that, already doing that against the anti-war community at that point in time. And I can show you letters 
the, the suicide thing is over the top. Okay. But I can show you letters written to employers, to spouses, anybody that the, an FBI bureau office thought was being subversive. They went after them personally. That's kind of wild to me. I mean, I don't know if this is just the times or incompetence or what, but it's a little bit mind boggling to think the FBI would put in paper on in writing, apparently a ton of these sorts of letters to different people that can easily be traced back to them that it just sounds so incriminating that and heavy handedly. So <laughs> if you had been here during the sixties and seventies, <laughs> heavy handed would not be uh, yeah. Um, a mark of the times. huh? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess put it in context. There's there's two ways to view all of it. Hoover, it's a personality thing. Who, when Hoover ever is in charge of the FBI, wants the bureau to engage in something. The field office chiefs. If I'm, I mean, I know what my career looks like. Hoover is going after King. I please the boss by going after King. I'm not justifying that. That's bad news. The bad news is any of these agencies can be personalized. If you ratchet that farther up ahead, look at contemporary times. Basically, who's ever in charge of justice and whoever is in charge of the Bureau is a driver. Their agendas, their priorities drive, they pressure, and people go off the rails. We, we see the same thing. I know it, it's easy to fault. If you look at Robert Kennedy, when he was head of justice, he waged war against organized crime. And there were a bunch of things done against organized crime that were illegal. Should they have been done? Were they needed? Yeah. Okay. But he was the driving force. His priority was to go after organized crime. And if you were down there in the trenches, you look good by busting their chops regardless of what it took. Let's bring that to the King perspective. In 1960. Seven in 1968, the FBI in the South destroyed the Klan. They destroyed it by going head to head. I mean, they would confront them. They would send dirty letters to their wives telling him who they were sleeping with. Now, that's because they had been given their marching orders. They've got to stop the racial violence that's going on, the, the real violence. And they busted their chops and they did things that were overboard, illegal. And you get trapped into this. What's good? What's bad? You know, uh, so it, it's who's in charge and what are their priorities? And you, you just don't get surprised right now. Quite frankly, we're suffering from the fact when when the priorities at the top don't match the real threat, then you also have a problem because the field offices are looking the other direction when the threat's coming, you know. It's complex. <laughs> and, and it was a much younger agency because it, it was designed particularly for this job of fighting organized crime. So you mentioned earlier that MLK wasn't particularly nice to think about the things he said about the FBI. So this cult of personality that's built around Hoover, do you think that that was really like the, a reaction to those statements? No, the cult of personality, Hoover was a, Hoover was the only FBI director that's really been what I would call a public figure. I mean, someone who would do speaking tours, who would write frequently against communism normally, but 
he made himself, and actually, if you look into Hoover's bios, he became what he became because he could sell himself. Hmm. He was not a great lawman. He did not do, you know, he did not do some of the exploits down in the in the ditch with guns. He, he knew how to promote himself. And so, to answer your question, Hoover was a self promoter. Because of that, he made himself a public figure by taking positions against things, whether it was communism or, you know, he would seize various pieces of high ground and promote it. And the field responded to what the director's obvious choices were. And you made a good remark. It was a younger agency. And basically, at that point in time, almost every bureau chief, they had all come up with Hoover or under Hoover. They were personally connected to Hoover. He wasn't just someone who'd been appointed to that job. He had been there for years and years, and everybody knew him. And they were in their position because Hoover was good with them. And the instant he became bad with them, not only were you not a chief anymore, you were a desk holder in North Dakota. Hoover Hoover did that really well. You were either aligned with Hoover or you were still with the agency, but someplace you didn't want to be. Hmm. So the uh, the United States version of Siberia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the gulag. Right. To get back to your question about Memphis. Okay, let, let's talk <laughs> about Memphis. In 1968, and we know this because we can look at the inner office correspondence, Hoover had tasked the FBI primarily with obstructing the march in Washington, D.C., that, that was King's top priority. He didn't want to be in Memphis. He didn't want to be in Memphis twice. What he wanted to do was he was organizing for this massive march in Washington, D.C., and Hoover wanted to stop that. And just to give you an idea, the field officers with tasks were coming up with ideas of how they could stop this march. And I can I can show you letters that say, well, what we're going to do is we're going to lease all the buses in a given city so he won't be able to put people on buses to go to Washington, D.C. You know, at first it's a microcosm, but they're really, well, we'll write letters to these people. We'll make sure he doesn't get donations for this or that. It's just all of these low-level activities to mess with the march on Washington, D.C. That's what the FBI was doing. Hoover himself was still writing letters to everybody in the administration, RFK, everybody else, smearing King, telling everybody he was a communist, the same smear program he'd be doing. And it was so bad that people were sent, like Robert Kennedy is sending him back letters saying, J. Edgar, I just don't want to hear this anymore. <laughs> Stop sending me this stuff. I, you know, he was Hoover's boring people by this point in time. It's becoming Hoover's essentially become those emails from your grandma, those forwards <laughs> that you get that nobody wants. Nobody wants. And there was no delete. You know, you just can't erase right. them. <laughs> okay. That's what they're focused on, what Hoover's focused on is the march. King would have liked to focus on the march. But what happened is rather than staying in Atlanta and devoting all his time to organizing the march, a personal friend of his asked him, a, a pastor, asked him to come to Memphis and support the sanitation worker strike that was going on there. So he goes, and the whole march turns into a disaster because of a group of young blacks called the invaders 
who during the march start breaking shop windows, start looting, and basically blow away King's peaceful march. My my understanding is that this has been kind of a, a growing problem for King by this point, it, right? It absolutely is. And kind of the context for that is King is in competition with Carmichael and a lot of the more radical leaders who are beginning to advocate violence. It's kind of like if they come after us, we need to go after them. This passive approach is not cutting it. We've got to stand up to them. King was in, he was probably the last really significant national voice for passive resistance. So the, this is a strategic problem for him as well, because up to that point in time, he had been able to hold his rallies together pretty well. But what the invaders did in Memphis was to demonstrate he was losing that kind of control, especially under over the young radicals. This is a real problem because if King can't control a march in Memphis, Tennessee, what's going to happen to that march in Washington? Mm. Exactly how bad could it go? And this Memphis, the first march in Memphis, is giving Hoover ammunition for going back to Washington and say, I told you guys, this guy, you know, he's going to put together this thing and we're going to have a disaster in the Capitol. Okay. Hmm. King knows he would have liked to have gone to Memphis, done his friend a favor, gone back. Now he's got to go back to Memphis and lead another march that has to be peaceful. Because if he can't pull off a second peaceful march in Memphis, he's going to have a real problem with his national march. So he goes back a second time. The problem is at that point in time, there are three different security players in Memphis. The Memphis police have already been engaged with the sanitation worker strike. There's been some minor violence. It hasn't been there. Certainly there was violence during the the last march. You know, they don't want any more violence. They really don't. Uh, They would like to have the march banned. That was one thing King kept fighting at the last minute was keeping the march from being banned, which is why he was meeting with the invaders the afternoon he was shot. They were asking him for cars. They were asking him for all sorts of things so as not to be violent. You got to give us stuff so that we're not violent. And again, you can ramp that forward. They're always... There are always some folks around that want something out of a protest. You know, it's like I can leverage this for my <laughs> lower level agenda. I want a TV set now. OK, if you give me a TV set now, I don't have to break a window and get a TV set. <laughs> the Memphis police actually met King's contingent at the airport. And before they can even approach King himself, it's recognized that one of the black officers that with his contingent is a known quote-unquote police spy. He's been attending the rallies, supporting the sanitation strike. He is known as a police agent. They immediately confront him, start calling him names, and tell them, you know, you people are just trying to subvert Dr. King. We don't want anything to do with you. Go away. You guys are a threat. We don't trust you. And so the police literally do back off. And what they did as a result of that confrontation is that they backed off and established a security perimeter a block to two blocks away from where King was staying at the Lorraine Motel. So the police were there. Okay. Unfortunately, this is not unlike what happened with Robert Kennedy in Los Angeles, where his own contingent 
told LAPD they didn't want them directly involved in any of his security because they didn't trust him. The 60s was not a good place to be in some ways. I was there. That mistrust can, you know, it it works both ways. But so talk about security. So in Memphis, we do have police at the time of the assassination. You had police with basically patrol cars, kind of a cordon, a block to two blocks away. There were police observers in the fire station overlooking the motel for one reason, because they wanted to see, for example, they saw that he was meeting with the invaders. Now, are you suspicious? Which which way are you going to go? We know he was trying to take them out of the picture for all they knew. You know, like, what is he really doing with them? These guys, we, we've had a guy planted within the invaders, and he has called us and told us that they are meeting with King. So anyway, you had police officers in the fire station observing and making minute by minute notes about who was coming and going, meeting with King. You had military intelligence officers in Memphis. Why did you have military intelligence officers in Memphis? That looks pretty suspicious, doesn't it? The reason you have that is you've got to go back to the summer of 1967 and the nationwide riots, immense riots that occur in Detroit, Los Angeles, around the country. As a result of those riots, Johnson had issued an executive order, which essentially was contingency planning for riots. And basically, the directive went out to all of the regional military intelligence units and said, look, you have got to start monitoring rallies. You've got to start monitoring protests, whether they're racial, anti-war, strikes, whatever You guys have got to have a contingency plan in place. If one of these things goes bad, you've got to be able to set to respond. Well, Stu and I actually found all of the, not only executive directive, but we found the the memoranda that were being exchanged, assigning these guys to go down to Memphis, coordinate with the police to, to do surveillance. Now, you cannot like that, or you can say, well, if there is a riot, do you want them prepared to handle it? So there was, I, I guess one of the things that tilts the whole security picture is there's no way that you could have protected King from being shot unless you had actually people in every building on every floor around him at all times. That wasn't going to happen. And the fact that Ray came within two minutes of being caught by the police that had been at that fire station. He got away only by the skin of his teeth. There was a security cord in there. So, Patrick, is that answering your question on security? Yeah, certainly. Uh-huh. I, I think the next thing we wanted to hop into was James Earl Ray. Well, I do want to say real quick, I loved the sanitation workers slogan, I am a man. And I think that's such a great, humble slogan. It reminds me of Black Lives Matter. It's such a humble request. Like, please just see me as a man. Please know that my life matters. I loved that. And just free me from the work I'm doing. That's what they were trying. That's all they were really trying to say is I want to be paid and have have the same benefits that you would give to anybody else in this job. That's all I want. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Seems like such a simple request. And yet the fact that they have to make it is such a problem. And if I remember correctly, the Lorraine Hotel had black royalty come in and out of there. I know Isaac Hayes stayed there. Aretha Franklin stayed there. That's had nothing to do with my question, but um, Keenan stayed there before too. 
Yeah, they knew it was safe. They knew they'd be taken care of there. But I guess my question, I don't know if there's a <laughs> a less blunt way to ask this, but did James Earl Ray kill Reverend King? How about maybe? <laughs> <laughs> okay. James Earl Ray was in Memphis to participate in the assassination of King. Okay. There's absolutely no doubt about that. He carried a rifle to be used in the assassination of King. There was a plot, a, a conspiracy to kill King. James Earl Ray, in his most basic role, was just a courier. He was carrying in the weapon because all of the guys that were to be the likely shooters, with the exception of one, were under surveillance because they were violent clan members. And Sue and I found the police reports that said, you know, the afternoon of the assassination, they were such obvious suspects that everybody looked to see if they were at home or out of town. So they either all had alibis. The, the one guy who didn't have an alibi by the name of Thomas Terrence was at a planned safe house in North Carolina. Maybe. Maybe he was in Memphis. There's nothing innocent about Ray's role. Okay. So he knows there's an assassination of play. He knows he's got a role to play. Here's where the question comes in. If you really devote time to James Earl Ray, you understand that Ray, the only thing that motivated Ray in life ever was money. That's what Ray is about. It's about money. If you dig into this bounty offer that we track in the book, the bounty offer had two tiers. For $10,000, you were recruited to be a support role. For $100,000, you did the assassination. What we don't know, and, and there is some evidence, circumstantial evidence to prove that Ray actually, once he got in the boarding house with the rifle, got familiar, uh, started doing surveillance on the Lorraine as he was tasked with doing, observed that Martin Luther King was coming in and out of his room in full view of the bathroom window that Ray was watching him from. It appears that at that point in time, a relay may have clicked in Ray's head that said <laughs> 100,000, not 10,000. Right. And he went back to the room, got the rifle, took the shot, not a hard shot at that distance with that rifle, killed him, and immediately fled. Now, one of the pieces of circumstantial evidence is that he immediately fled, taking about half the stuff in the room, rolling it into a blanket, carrying it onto the street, and dumping it because it realized that looked pretty suspicious. Sound like, okay. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> this is not a well-planned escape, okay? Uh, but leaving half the stuff in the room to be identified by the FBI and traced to him later, including a radio he'd had in prison. Okay. So that makes it sound kind of like he... It was a, a spur-of-the-moment decision. He wasn't supposed to do it, Correct. but he decided to do it and then panicked. Correct. Yeah, and that's why I say maybe. The, the proof, the evidence is so mixed up at this point in time. One of the reasons being, of course, is because when Ray was put on trial, his plea was guilty, which meant that all the evidence that the prosecution was offering was accepted into evidence with no challenge at all. So from the get-go, 
There's no technical review. There's no challenge to the evidence. From the beginning, the evidence is contaminated, and it gets real confusing. When when the House Select Committee examined this, they brought on some forensics experts, and they actually had three fingerprint experts look at fingerprints on various materials, including the rifle, that related to Ray. And the conclusion was, yeah, those are Ray's fingerprints. What we found out after the fact was that if you looked at the various prints and what they said was Ray's and what wasn't, they don't match. One guy said, this is Ray's print. Another guy said, no, that's not Ray's print. Another guy said, this is Ray's print. Another guy said, no, that's not Ray's print. It's so confabulated. I I mean, you just get messed up in the evidence. That's the reason I give you a maybe. Ray is guilty of a conspiracy to kill Dr. King. Whether or not he's guilty in the murder of Dr. King is a good question. Right. No, so, no one's arguing that James Earl Ray was a good guy. <laughs> right. Right. Even his brother. It's fascinating. His his brother was asked by a reporter, "Would James do that?" and and his brother said, "Well, for a hundred thousand dollars, he would." <laughs> More importantly, a girlfriend of his, who happened to be an FBI informant, was talking to his brother, and his brother said, "Well, of course he did it for a hundred thousand dollars." And that's in an FBI record. Wow. So wow. And that's I, in I 1968 dollars. That's a lot more yeah, today. Right. I, I kind of tend to think that Ray did it, but mm. I don't think that was the plan. Actually, Stu and I believe that the plan was much more sensational than that, and that James Earl Ray actually screwed up the plan. Huh. We believe that the plan was to assassinate Dr. King on live television during the march the following day. If that had happened, you would have had a series of race riots exponentially greater than those that actually occurred. It would have been an emotional moment similar to what we would have seen last week if congressmen had been assassinated in live television from the Capitol. That's what these kind of people want. These are jihadists. They want maximum emotional impact. The reason we think that happened and that Ray actually, you know, maybe did his favor is that his whole flight back to Atlanta and his efforts in Atlanta to contact people and get money totally blew apart. Why would why would James R.F. he's planning to kill Dr. King go back to the rooming house where he had just been in Atlanta and still had left stuff traceable to him and then end up doing nothing more than taking a bus? To Canada. This is not making sense as an escape plan. So if we if we follow the breadcrumbs back, the the bounty that was put out, what evidence do we have about this a hundred thousand dollars and who who had the motivation and the means to put up that kind of nineteen sixty-eight dollars? Well, the bounty on Dr. King actually began, and it began from the White Knights, Sam Bowers and the White Knights of Mississippi, in 1964. In 1964, after the killings in Mississippi, which they were well aware would draw Dr. King, Dr. King always responded to major incidents of that sort by trying to go in and calm matters. They knew he would be coming to Mississippi. They actually hired a known assassin named Sparks, Donald Sparks, to kill Dr. King in Jackson, Mississippi. 
How do we know that? We know that from an FBI investigation. This was reported to the FBI. It was confirmed. It was investigated. The bottom line is the only reason that didn't happen is Sparks was doing it strictly for money, only $10,000 then. And at that point in time, everything came together and Sparks was in town, but they couldn't come up with the cash, so he didn't do it. That was one of their fundamental problems at that point in time was hiring talent. You know, it's not that they were adverse to it. They just were constrained on money. So for the next two years in 1965 and 1966, they turned around and tried to kill King themselves. For example, in 1965, King was on a series of speaking tours in Mississippi. They actually planned a targeted assassination, very tactically sophisticated, using snipers and planting dynamite on a bridge. So as he passed into the bridge, they would either kill everyone in the car or they'd blow the bridge up. How do we know this? We know that from an FBI informant named Dennis Delmar, who I mentioned earlier, who was the pastor who was working with Bowers, who eventually turned away from him because he was so appalled by what was going on, especially the religious aspect. He thought what was going on was just a resistance to integration. When he found out it was diametrically opposed to Christian religion, he was appalled. So that failed. The only reason that failed, King's life was saved a number of times because King was very situational. If something happened, if somebody called him up, he would respond to them. That meant his itinerary, his travel plans, his activities changed all the time. And it just drove these guys nuts. They're on numerous occasions. They had plans to shoot him, bomb him, and he would go someplace else. He would leave town early. They'd blow up a motel. He's already gone. You know, we document all that, but it's a very straightforward pattern. I love the sort of like Magoo-ness of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do very much like the idea of super frustrated racist assassins. Like, oh, God. And it's so appalling. I mean, it's like totally dark humor. The, the next year in 66, and I, I don't know if you've heard of the Ben Chester White murder. Uh, no. At the time... No one could really understand why it happened because these Klan guys just went out and picked up an ordinary laborer. Nobody, it just everybody knew him, very friendly, very just a day worker, offered him a ride, took him over a bridge and killed him and dumped his body in the river. And I nobody could what? understand it. Just totally no. brutal crime with no, he had not done anything. He had not talked to a white woman. He had not, for all the usual excuses they use, he hadn't done it. So nobody oh, could understand why until we figured out these guys were tasked with this by Bauer's clan. The reason they were tasked with it is that that was supposed to lure King into another kill zone and they were set for him there. But what happened instead is a march diverted King away from that incident. So he went someplace else. It was just one thing after another where they were trying to get him. The problem was by that time, by 60, in 67, 66, the FBI was all over him. The FBI had informants within the group. They had them all under surveillance. And after the Mississippi burning killings, they actually managed to convict them. Hmm. And by 1968, basically everybody, Bowers himself and most of his close lieutenants, 
were already scheduled to go to prison. So we got a real problem here. We're still dedicated to our plan. We're going to prison. What do we do? We're going to put out a bounty offer again. The good news is this time we have a lot of money because a lot of money has been collected in Atlanta, Georgia, and we're actually at a point where we can offer $100,000 in cash. And this is an offer we can pitch to the big guys. We can pitch this in federal prisons, and that offer is documented in multiple federal prisons as well as the penitentiary where James Earl Ray was. I'm getting kind of a vibe that with the increased surveillance on these hate groups, they kind of needed someone like James Earl Ray, who was not a member, to come in and do the job. They might not have been able to do it otherwise. It's got to be somebody disconnected from them. Somebody, which quite frankly is one of the reasons the first time they went to this guy named Sparks is because he was part of what was known as the Dixie Mafia. These were a a semi-organized group of criminals operating throughout the South, but he operated primarily out of Oklahoma and Kansas. So you want to bring in an outsider. This was not totally new to them because if you really get into the history of planned violence, you will find that they subcontracted violence. Plan from Mississippi would get a plan from Alabama to bomb a church. Hmm. Somebody from Alabama would get a do a contract with somebody from Georgia to bomb a church. So using outsiders is part of the tactical plan because mm-hmm. you're under observation. But if these guys just, you know, drift away, nobody's what what, you know. Uh yeah, sure. so yeah, there there is you need to go to outsiders. So what we see in 1967 is this $100,000 bounty starts showing up in prisons, and and it was reported to the FBI. A, a guy who heard it in prison, Donald Nissen, reported it to the FBI. And the interesting thing is, as it turns out, he had heard it from a guy in a federal prison who was a close associate of Donald Sparks. So Sparks had simply passed on. Oh, yeah, we remember when the Klan was offering $10,000. Good news, it's up to $100,000. The reason they offered it to Nissen was that he was being released from prison and going back to Atlanta, which is where King's home base was. So he was a good candidate, not to shoot, but to be support. The reason James Earl Ray heard about it and passed it on, by the way, is when Ray heard about it, you know, he was still in prison. He was going to be in prison for years. So he just passed it on to a guy who was going back to Atlanta and might want to look into it. But within three months, Ray escapes. So suddenly now it's on the table for Ray and Ray knows it's there. Long story. He goes to Canada. He goes to Mexico. Eventually he runs out of money, but he still knows it's there. But to answer your question, that that is why they turn to outsiders. Mm -hmm. Wow. One also seems like with what you're saying about FBI records, if you commit a crime that's not in your city, the chances of them catching you are virtually nil. There's virtually zero chance they're going to catch you. Yeah, because they didn't have the ability to. (laughs) They didn't have the ability to do what we if you watch NCIS, you know, you can just pull up (laughs) screen. anybody is associated with anybody from 400 years ago and their cousin. Uh, No, the FBI could not do that. I think the most frustrating example of that is when Donald Nissen was given, went to the FBI and said, look, 
this guy, McMahon, a man told me about this bounty to kill King. I think he was really serious. He said the bounty was coming out of Jackson, Mississippi. And if I was interested, I was to go there and talk to this woman. Told him who the new woman was. The FBI went to Jackson, Mississippi, interviewed her. And she, of course, said, oh, well, no, I don't have no idea about that. They didn't really investigate to determine she was engaged to McManaman, who was in the federal prison. <laughs> oh, my God. The, and had been like, visiting him routinely. And it was up to Stu and I to find this out. You know, it's kind of like, oh you guys could have and, and you left the report says, well, she's well-established and well-known real estate agent in Jackson and has a good reputation. So we think it's all nonsense. Wow. Yeah, so- it had to feel like you guys found buried treasure when you found that piece of information or the information on the bounties or whatever. Like, I can only imagine what that must have felt like. There were a lot of aha moments. Uh, and there were also a lot of, no, they couldn't have missed this. They could. But <laughs> but then after talking to some of them and, and, and really realizing, you know, what their limitations were, I, I think one of the things that has to be clear and. And even today is that law enforcement has some real constraints unless something becomes like a national security issue. The FBI is an investigative body. They go ask questions. If the if threat is reported to them like this, they ask questions. They make a report. They're not investigating a crime. Crime hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. on the front end, like we have just seen at the Capitol, you until a crime happens, unless somebody changes the rules and elevates it beyond their normal rules for engagement, they they just go ask questions, make a report. That's all they can do legally. I'm sort of reminded of I'm a, I'm a I don't know if you can tell from my shirt and everything behind me, but I'm a, I'm a Star Wars fan. There's the scene in in the original Star Wars movie when the stormtroopers are looking for the droids. They're searching for them, and they come across a locked door and go, oh, this one's locked. Let's move yeah. on. Yeah, I saw the first one, the first one at the yeah. first time. So it's, like, <laughs> I it's, like, yeah. it's great. It's like, yeah. well, it's locked. Uh, let's, it's gone. Yeah. But the, <laughs> right. that is a lot of – that is probably the most frustrating thing about FBI investigations anywhere and anytime is how superficial they have to be until a crime is committed. But even after a crime is committed, they are, are very focused. Normally, they're, you know, go investigate A, not B, not C, not D. We want you to go investigate A and make a report on A. You know, if the witness happens to say something, it's like, I, I you know, that's not what I'm asking you. Answer my question. Don't tell me you saw this other guy shoot. I'm, t- I'm asking you about person A, not person B. Hmm. The process of investigating and and prosecuting this murder um, and, and, you know, between government cover ups and just plain old government incompetency, there's just a ton of issues and convolutions. Uh, Can you kind of help us streamline through what that process was and what happened? I I think the the first thing that really obfuscated the whole thing is the fact that Ray's lawyer persuaded him to into a guilty plea. Whenever you've got a guilty plea, the same thing would happen in the Robert Kennedy assassination. Whenever you got going to court with a guilty plea, the whole legal process is short-circuited. 
there's there's no prosecution really why do you need a prosecution sure uh, uh the yeah. guy pled guilty the only exception that ray made was after the judge said well plead guilty yes sir ray says i only have one objection my objection is that there are people saying that there was no conspiracy involved in this and that's not right hmm. okay wow. and the judge said well thank you for that please sit down not relevant you just Man. pled guilty i'm not here to try a conspiracy case you just pled guilty and so ray walks off well about 48 hours later something like that a letter comes to the judge and ray renounces his guilty plea hmm. and it's like oh dear but that and doesn't matter does it because he's already entered the guilty plea at that point in time Ray would have to prove, and, and he did assert that his lawyer had misled him. Ray would be back in court defending that proposition with the judge. Now, we don't know. <laughs> that may have shocked the judge so badly, it's hard to say. It's like, oh, geez, the judge had a heart attack. Okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> so for the next year after year, Ray will be issuing challenges, asking for a retrial, Time after time, different lawyers, the whole system will be bollocked up by that one fact that Ray pleads guilty and then says, no, I'm innocent. Hmm. And the legal system has a real problem with that. It also had a, a real problem with the fact that each and every one of his lawyers tried to publish a book and tried to make, since Ray had no money, tried to make some massive money off books about Ray. Now. Do you think they wrote a book saying, yes, Ray did it all by himself. Uh, okay, this is right. two pages long, and now I want you to pay me $30 for it. No, no, they did not. They all came up with very complex, well, yes, there was a conspiracy and it involved this group of people. It was the communist Chinese. No, it was the FBI. It was the, and of course, Ray really liked that because he assumed he was going to get money out of the books, too. So you have this whole series of books with different guilty parties, different conspiracy scenarios that kept clouding the issue over the years. The only thing I would say anecdotally that Ray ever got out of that process was, A, he was diverted. He was constantly involved in these legal games, in and out, in court, whatever, and actually to the point where he ended up marrying a court stenographer <laughs> from one of the times he was back in jail. Wow. And yeah. there were some some positives about that for him. But after a couple of years, she realized that you couldn't ever believe anything James Earl Ray said. There was one conversation about, well, did you kill King? And Ray says, who cares? The SLB deserved to die. I, I, and she was so appalled she divorced him. Uh -huh. You know, that just went on <laughs> year after year. Now, okay. So what happens next? Of course, the the crime was reinvestigated by the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the 70s. They looked into a lot of these bounties, tracked some of them a certain distance, became very suspicious of Ray's brother as having passed on bounty information to him and perhaps having been an accessory, tried to track down some of the people that were offering the bounties. Unfortunately, again, they didn't have access to what we have access to now. And they ended up rendering a verdict that, yes, there was a conspiracy in play, but they couldn't find anyone specifically to recommend charging. What they did recommend 
was that an investigation be reopened by the FBI. That did not happen. And so it just it just sat there for another 10, 15 years. In the interim, Ray escaped from prison once and was <laughs> for three days, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Ray was really good. One of the reasons we're particularly suspicious about this maybe killing King is that Ray was really good at planning, especially escapes. Hmm. He was much better at planning than he was at executing. And earlier, (laughs) he had committed several robberies and armed robberies, and he would always get caught. I mean, almost instantly get caught. Um, (laughs) At one time, he was committing a burglary. Um, A night watchman checked into it. He had to jump out of the back window into a muddy parking lot, (laughs) left his car, his shoes, so many shoes got stuck in the mud, and the police picked him up walking on the railroad tracks out of town. And if you really want some humorous, you can look at the exchange of the police officers with, sir, why is it that you're walking barefoot on the railroad tracks? Oh he, he was raised, and, but I, I don't want to make fun of him. The other thing he continually did in his various crimes was use patsies. For example, one time a friend and, and he uh, sold some postal mail orders and got caught. Ray always got caught. He became a jailhouse lawyer. This guy is an experienced convict. He's a jailhouse lawyer. So his plea was not that, oh, I stole a personal money order, which is a federal crime, but no, I bought a postal money order, which had been stolen by someone else, which is not a federal crime. (laughs) So don't think of him as stupid. He's cunning. That you guys got to approach Jamie Ray is he's an opportunist and he's cunning, and so don't underestimate that he's dim-witted. He's he comes up with all sorts of wonderful ideas that he never is able to execute. I mean, in Mexico, he tries to go into the pornographic film business, and that's a saga all by itself. I, uh, yeah, I've heard a little bit about this that that was his dream was to go into porn. That well, that was a way to make money. He was always, how do you make money with the least possible effort? After after multiple robberies just kept not working out so well for him, he decided, you know, pornography would be safer. And he couldn't make <laughs> he couldn't make that work for him either. And then finally he was going to become a bartender, which is an interesting idea that, you know. So would you characterize this as at one point we had a lack of tools on the part of the FBI, lack of coordination. There might have been a lack of motivation in order to continue prosecuting. Would you call any of this a cover-up? Do you uh, think that there's information that was intentionally hidden? That That's a good question because it also brings up the, the difference between what the FBI was doing. The murder of King was a capital offense in the state of Tennessee. It was not a federal crime. The FBI's role, as it is, was with the Kennedy assassination, the Robert Kennedy assassination, because at the time, none of those were federal crimes. They were simply assigned by the president to assist local authorities in investigation. Uh, They became particularly involved with Ray because he fled overseas, of course. So the FBI, uh, let's put it this way. They were very involved in the investigation 
and in a broad investigation. They really thought there was a conspiracy. They thought there were multiple people involved up until the point where enough evidence came together that they realized that the multiple names that were in play were really aliases for one person. As soon as they found out that the one person was James Earl Ray, and they could relate some of the evidence from the crime scene to James Earl Ray, they were really done. Their investigation was done at that time. They handed that off to the local authorities. They did continue to be involved until he was caught overseas. And this is true in almost every case. I think it's important to understand once the FBI, and this is true in almost any prosecution, once a crime can be tied in an evidentiary manner to a person that can be prosecuted, the tendency is for whatever legal authority is doing the prosecution to call it done. Hmm. They, They do not want to sacrifice an easy case for conspiracy. Right. Conspiracy just muddies the water for a prosecutor. They don't (laughs) want it. And I understand that, but that just seems pretty negligent. Like, just let's ignore what actually happened so that my job is a little easier. Well, it's also, and here's the, again, this is where harsh harsh realities intrude. Prosecutors are usually either appointed or elected, Hmm. and they base their argument for both on their conviction rate. So no prosecutor in his right mind is inclined to throw away a slam dunk conspiracy. I've got Sirhan Sirhan with a gun. First of all, then I've got to say, I'm going to throw that away and go after a bigger case, which I may never be able to prosecute. But secondly, what happens if I accept the fact that Ray is not the killer? He's simply an assistant to an accessory to conspiracy that reduces the charges dramatically. Mm-hmm. And proving that he's an accessory to a conspiracy means I got to prove there's a conspiracy. Proving a conspiracy <laughs> is a lot harder than proving a murder. Okay, so I, I'm not trying to uh, support any of that, but that is the reality. Prosecutors tend to prosecute cases they think they can win and put somebody in jail who is guilty of something. So, Patrick, on your question, I don't think the FBI. No, I don't think the FBI covered up anything. They simply stopped at a given point. The prosecutor took it over, took whatever he could use to make a case, went into court, and Ray confessed and made a guilty plea. What, what's there to cover up? It's more just a matter of everyone staying a little too aggressively inside of the Exactly. You would see the same thing in several places. Most of the political assassinations, whether it be... Kennedy, John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, you you tend they tend to dial themselves in. But the other thing for Patrick is, I will say, J. Edgar Hoover had an ironclad rule, and I won't say every FBI director has that rule. J. Edgar Hoover was a demon for efficiency, paperwork, efficiency, whatever. You didn't punctuate right, you didn't get promoted, uh, and I, that's not really a joke. It's really true. Um, basically, I like the grammar strictness oh, that at least yeah. he can support. At, at a given <laughs> point in time, when he's got somebody that he can try to evidence, he writes a memo. In 1963, as soon as they could tie Lee Oswald 
the previous evening, he had written a memo saying directing a totally open investigation. Go to every source of every stripe that might be considered to have a motive, investigate him. The next morning by 1030, it's investigate Lee Oswald. I'm interested in making a case against Lee Oswald. If somebody proves somebody talked to Lee Oswald and was, okay, fine. Anybody else? I don't care. We see the same thing in the King assassination. For some three months, it's an open investigation. They're pursuing all sorts of leads. The first picture that they show at the gun store is this guy, Thomas Terrence, who was an undercover white knight operative. I mean, they're investigating everything, but once they dial it down to Ray and connect him to the rifle and put him in that building, then the whole thing changes. So I can show you cover-ups in other places, but I would call this, what I call these things is like a systems failure. (laughs) It's not so much, it's the way the system is built at all levels, and it can look like a cover-up, but it's really the system being built to do certain things, and that is prosecute and convict criminals. (laughs) It's not a system that's built to deal with conspiracy, for that matter. It really isn't. So it's somewhat easy to game. Yeah, I I worry that we're letting more conspiracies through the cracks just in the way that we're prosecuting things. But it's funny. I've written three books about political assassination. Well, two books and one expanded monograph. In each case, I found a conspiracy. So I wouldn't say conspiracies don't exist, but in each case, I found that the conspiracy was not pursued because there was an easy suspect to be either convicted or dead. So I, I wouldn't maintain conspiracies don't exist. But, it, yeah, it's it's hard to deal with them if they're sophisticated enough to have a passing. The funny thing is this is not funny. None of this is funny. But um, I don't think James Earl Ray was intended to be a patsy. He was intended to do what he was supposed to do, which mm-hmm. was bring a gun to Memphis and not screw it up. And he screwed it up. You know, I think the people in Dallas were very unhappy that the conspiracy that they wanted to see emerge was squelched. There, there was a cover up, but it was diametrically opposed to the conspiracy. What are, what are the unanswered questions still? Do you think that the FBI or the, or the Justice Department or whoever should reopen this investigation? We feel that. There is one person that might hold information that would have at least confirmed that there was conspiracy, and that's Thomas Terrence, who is, I don't know if he's actually retired or not. We attempted to contact him several times. He was Bauer's undercover assassin for the White Knights. We think that he was an FBI source. We think he was given FBI protection because of what he knew, not so much about the King assassination, but other activities. We absolutely know that several of Bauer's people became FBI sources. That's the sort of thing that allowed the FBI to totally bust and break apart the Klan at that point in time. So Terrence may well be in a protected status. There are a lot of reasons why he wouldn't want to talk. He might know something that would confirm a conspiracy. I can't think of anyone else who is still alive who would. Funniest thing to me is we have Donald Nissen, who was used as a courier to carry money in the conspiracy and is willing to describe that. We can document every single thing he said, but nobody has been willing to even go interview him. We've been approached in several documentaries and media, but 
he could simply confirm his experience, which was not directly associated with the killing. Again, confirming a conspiracy is not hard to do, but proving it, I don't No, I don't think we see any loose ends other than, for example, Terrence could confirm, for example, that Bowers had issued this order and that they had the money. I'd like to say there were loose ends, uh, certainly loose ends when we started, but I don't really see any loose ends at this point in time other than that outstanding question of whether or not Ray did. If he pulled the trigger or not. Yeah, exactly. And and in looking at all the possible shooting angles, the trajectories, everything else, Ray and his shooting position stands out as the most logical place for that, that shot. So you do feel fairly comfortable coming down, like saying probably it was Ray short, short of having been there in the room with him and watching him do it. You're about as confident as you can be. I I would say probably it was Ray and he, it was not part of the plan. Hmm. It was Ray. Uh, And, and he, I, I, the only thing that cheers me up about the whole thing is that he almost got caught. He got back to Atlanta and he frantically called people that he thought were going to give him money because he had done a good thing and they were really upset that he'd blown apart their plan and nobody would talk to him. And he had to, he had to leave on a bus. That's the only thing that comforts me about the whole, all of it. Yeah. Wow. What is, and the motivations that you gave him about wanting more money certainly make sense in the context of what happened. So, well, okay. I want to switch it up a little bit if I can. I'm sure investigating this, you've heard all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories. Can I ask, What's the most bizarre conspiracy theory you've heard, either true or not? I assume probably not. I think the most bizarre comes out of a couple of Ray's first attorneys, Huey Mm -hmm. and then uh, J.B. Stoner himself. Remember, Stoner was the guy who bombed a church and offered to kill. I mean, it's great (laughs) that Ray had a a lawyer who had been provably shown to have bombed a church and taken a bounty to kill King. And this is Ray's lawyer. Okay. That's a good start. <laughs> and and by the way, the very first lawyer that he didn't have in court, but the first person he approached that we found was in Jackson, Mississippi. And he's the one who'd been doing law for the White Knights and Sam Bowers. These guys came up with this great conspiracy that involved Chinese communists, sure. the FBI, and LBJ. <laughs> there you go in an alliance and it, it's like <laughs> wait a minute and basically Ray's lawyers put forth these conspiracies that would involve everybody except the people that you would suspect okay we can't blame the clan we can't blame racists we can't blame extremists who is left well you know let's we could blame foreigners uh, Chinese are bad let's frame the federal government which takes us back to a very strange thing, because one of the logical, one of the conspiracies that's offered is that the federal government killed King because they felt that King's activities were going to provoke riots. Like, wait a minute. I'm afraid that King's passive marches are going to provoke riots. So I'm going to kill him. And what's going to happen then? Oh, right. Riot. <laughs> Not very deep thinking. I think, you know, that, that just sounds on par with uh, the idea just to bring it back to modern times again, the idea that, that Joe Biden is going to be, who's practically a Republican, is going to be a communist. Uh, to let China, a socialist. You know, it's like, yeah. Yes. 
uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. that, that it's yeah, Why it's not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it just okay. Let's let's go pick someone who's middle of the road who's going to be a stalking horse for the and the communists. Like there were any communists still around? Okay, <laughs> I mean it's like okay, I'm sure we can find some of them if we go somewhere and look. But you know. Or maybe a better example is the uh, the the right wingers storming the Capitol last week, and then you mean Antifa, people, and then people blaming it on Antifa. The right. first of all anti-fascist group, who second of all sort of in a sense like their team won the election. Why? Would <laughs> but they- I think it was really I think it was really well organized for them to buy all those flags. Oh, impressive. I mean they must be well funded. The logic fallacy of okay, this would be the anti-fascist who are opposing a dictator mm-hmm. wait a minute but, but <laughs> let's write that out as an equation and see how that you know can you balance both sides of that i don't think so and welcome back to fact check on january 7th republican representative from florida's first district matt gates went on the floor and said this. Some pretty compelling evidence from a facial recognition company showing that some of the people who breached the Capitol today were not Trump supporters. They were masquerading as Trump supporters and in fact were members of the violent terrorist group Antifa. Now we should seek to build America up, not tear her down and destroy her. And I am sure glad that at least for one day, I didn't hear my Democrat colleagues calling to defund the police. I mean, it's genuinely impressive to see someone cram quite so much horse into 30 seconds of a speech. But let's go over a little bit of it, shall we? There was zero evidence that members of Antifa were there storming the Capitol. In fact, according to the FBI and, you know, common sense, Antifa isn't an organization no matter how much Trumpists want it to be. It's an ideology. It'd be like saying that conservatives or environmentalists were there. Sure, maybe it's true, but you don't exactly have to sign up to join either. Antifa is neither violent nor a terrorist organization. It is, however, against fascism. Why aren't you, Matt Gates? Hey, sorry if you listen to the podcast. Uh, welcome, you fascist piece of <laughs> He also alluded to common purposeful disinformation about defunding the police, but that's a topic for another episode. Note to self, do an episode about defunding the police. So if Antifa wasn't there, as the FBI has confirmed now, who was? Well, first of all, it's been over a month, and so far, we still don't know for sure. It was a massive terrorist attack, and the FBI has so far identified over 400 individuals. Over 100 have already been arrested. However, here's what we do know for sure. Members of several well-known hate groups were identified. There were a disproportionate number of former and active military in the crowd. Off-duty police officers were identified in the crowd. And overwhelmingly, and not at all surprising, a massive amount of Trump supporters who attended the Stop the Steal rally earlier in the day and went over to the Capitol after the president told them, We fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Anyway, let's get back to the show. So, I mean, this kind of leads into my question here, which, because you spend all this time working with various conspiracy theories and conspiracies and stuff, you know, you've done work on, obviously, MLK, JFK, RFK. You've also done work on on UFO stuff and and that kind of 
quote unquote, and nine eleven and oh, Benghazi and, and the Pueblo oh, and wow. the yeah. <laughs> so and and my concern is you know without being too heavy handed about my question seventy some million Americans believe just wild conspiracies right now despite absolutely overwhelming evidence to the contrary and zero evidence in support so i feel like maybe you know the american people need a little bit of help separating out fact from fiction sometimes what kind of advice do you have for people you know as an experienced navigator through this how do you keep it separate how do you keep reality over here and nonsense over there what seems to have vanished, and when I was growing up back in the last glaciation, you know, <laughs> when we were discovering dirt, important discovery. There was there was there was a statement that says, "I'm from Missouri. I don't believe everything until me show me." In fact, it's called the show me state. And we kind of had that attitude, like everybody was sort of a skeptic. That was the American. Americans are hard nosed, and you have to convince us, and you have to show us facts. And we don't believe any of that nonsense until you can show us. Actually, we're not really even sure we trust any of you until you show it. And it wasn't just Missouri. It's Maine and Vermont. Like, you can't convince a Yankee. If, if you show him something standing right in front of him, he's still going to want to see the other side of it. to make sure that, <laughs> I see what's on side of this barn, but I'm not sure it has a rear. Okay. That was just an accepted American view of the world. We're pragmatists. We don't stampede. We we challenge. And that was supposed to be the American idiom. Now, I don't know where you want to blame it on talk radio or entertainment TV, reality yeah. TV. Personally, I believe it on what discourages me is somehow the American public suddenly started watching shows that were called reality TV that they knew they were scripted. You knew things had to go bad at that point in time. Right. So we've got to return to that. Prove it to me. Show me your source. The second of all, if you're telling me something I want to hear, I'm especially skeptical. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. at this point in time, I understand that media can be controlled and targeted to the point where I will only be getting the message from people that know what message I want to hear. So I should be exceptionally skeptical. Yes, I believe in conspiracies, but only conspiracies that you define and prove in after a lot, a lot hard work. And it's not the conspiracy anybody told you about. Up to date, I have not seen a single conspiracy that we have documented that anybody was promoting. That should be scary. The, yeah, the ones yeah. that people are promoting are too easy. Yes, they do exist, but you know they're not simple and they're not easy to find and they're not knee jerk. So we just need to return to a healthy skepticism and not believing people that tell us what we want to hear on either side, in any venue. I wish there were, and I wrote a book called Creating Chaos, which is about political warfare that kind of introduced this whole subject. And I said, what we really need is a virtual fact checker that's hmm. real time. It's an app that's running on your smartphone. It's an app that's, it gives you an alert every time something comes through that's bogus and at least it gives you an alert and you know you should go check it wow. it doesn't appear that we can any longer do that for ourselves so maybe yeah. we need an app but it would yeah. be best if we were doing it for ourselves i don't know who you can trust to make that app though well like, i was gonna say would you rely I think, on 
I think um, Nathan is best friends with Jeff Bezos. I think that's a great place to start. I do love Jeff. <laughs> we are good friends. Patrick, I think you're right. But what it would be required is it would be require some consensus. And again, I, I, this is an old thing, but we did used to have what we used to be able to do was to separate editorial from news. For example, you looked at right. a newspaper, you knew that wild-eyed people would show up on the editorial page, and you could take that for what it was worth. But you knew that the media staff, uh, news editors, were known as being the nastiest, grumpiest people in the world that would just harass their reporters to death if they got a story wrong. Mm -hmm. We need to create a center. Maybe it's this the Center for Fact-Checking that has people from all parties. This is a group of people we can really trust to get it right. They could even be professionals. It, it's interesting. I'm, I'm a big science fiction fan. And Robert Heinlein wrote some interesting Ooh. books. I don't know if you've heard of Heinlein. Yes, I have. Oh, yes, yeah. We, have. we all love Heinlein. Oh, one thing he had that. was in some of the stories was like an expert witness. And this is this expert witness is trained to never say anything. That's why I brought up the thing. If you ask this expert witness, what do you see? They will see. I will see a building, what appears to be a building. I can see this dimensions of it. It's this color. But I don't know that it's a building because I can only see one side of it. Could be just a facade. That's the degree of rigor you need in fact checking. And those people were bonded. You remember this comes up in several of his stories. And they, they were professionals. We need some professionals again. Fact check, fact check, fact check. And welcome back to Fact Check. Robert A. Heinlein was an American science fiction author, hence the nerdy moment from the lads, most famous for Stranger in a Strange Land from 61, which was an immensely popular and influential book among the anti-establishment crowd. While at the same time, Heinlein was out stumping for Barry Goldwater, of all people. This brief excerpt, illustrates what a, quote, fair witness is in his fiction, where the character referenced as Anne is an off-duty fair witness. Jubal to Jill. You know how fair witnesses behave. Jill. Well, no, I don't. I've never met one. Jubal to Jill. So, Anne? Anne was on the springboard. She turned her head. Jubal called out, That house on the hilltop. Can you see what color they painted it? Anne looked, then answered, It's white on this side. Jubal went on to Jill. You see, it doesn't occur to Anne to infer that the other side is white, too. All the king's horses couldn't force her to commit herself, unless she went there and looked, and even then she wouldn't assume that it stayed white after she left. You should definitely check out that book and others by Heinlein. We'll put some information in the doobly-doo. Back to the show. Fact check. We have lost the kind of professional source as well. Here's here's an old time example. Back in the day, we trusted certain reporters like Walter Cronkite. I know people make fun of Walter Cronkite now. When Walter Cronkite went to Vietnam, he reported what he saw and the war was over. We need some people yeah. that are trusted at that level now. And there are people like that. We could do it if we wanted to. I think what we're doing right now is we don't want to. We want only the facts that we want. 
comfort mm-hmm. news. And this whole thing started, this whole thing about there are no facts. I, I, I hate that. Oh, I, I mean, the first facts. time I heard that from a Trump spokesperson, oh, well, there's no facts. There <laughs> is reality. There are facts. There really are facts. Yes. I can't let you get away with saying there's no such thing as a fact. A fact is right. not virtual. Mm-hmm. Well, there are definitely alternative facts. I mean, we know that. Kellyanne <laughs> Conway. Uh, yeah. that. Right. You know when it first came up? No. no. 2014 by Mr. Putin. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Putin was taking all kinds of press about nuclear disasters with subs. And he, he started coming up with this meme that, well, the press are all against me and they have their facts and I have my facts. Now it makes it so much more sense no. where Trump got it from. <laughs> right. Wow. From his boss. Oh my goodness! And for for uh, our part, we would like to bring that accountability back in journalism. Our names actually beat a dead source, and one of the things that we do is we do pop in fact checks. If we make a bold claim, we'll come back and edit over it and say this is the real fact check about it. Right. So, yep. I really I like that idea. I I wish some of the news network. I mean, the networks now have the banners across the bottom. I would just wish they'd routinely run fact checking. Yeah. yeah. If, I, if I have somebody on a panel real time, you're going to have to hire some people and, and do it. But I would like to see. Yeah. I agree. Patrick. I fact that's the only way that we're going to get out of this is kind of to rebuild the trust that we don't have anymore. Mm-hmm. That's why we are pushing for beta dead source to become the mainstay of mainstream media for everyone. in the country. <laughs> yeah, right. We're very hopeful. <laughs> But the last, well, there, the there last... are enough networks out there. There's got to be room for, you know. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so one of the last things I had, the Pentagon released three declassified videos of UFOs in April. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Does the release <laughs> of footage open up the credibility to you of UFO stories that have been around for like decades, if not hundreds of years? Not the photos themselves. Okay. But there have been three sets of photos. The, the photos from the Nimitz incident, which is the carrier group in the Pacific of San Diego, are unique. They're unlike the sets of photos from the East Coast because those photos were supported by infrared imaging mm-hmm. and radar mm-hmm. and by other technology. They were also, those photos were supported by real-time data streams so that you can take that and actually do physics studies of the acceleration, the inertia, the iner- number of Gs that are being pulled, and you can get a lot of data out of the Nimitz incident, which is good because I, I'm associated with a group. It's a coalition for scientific studies of that sort of data, and the group has done a a study that's done calculations of the acceleration, the G loads. The G loads are such that we don't actually even have any materials. The strongest things that we can make, forget about any occupant, that the materials themselves couldn't stand the G load. And what we've done is compared to that to some other incidents that go all the way back to the 1940s. And what we find is that the acceleration, G loading, and inertia that we see back in the 1940s and 50s is the same that we see now. And Mm. to me, that proves in the phenomena because it's not really anything new. Whatever it is has been there for some time. And we've, you know, we've got reports. Those 
what the most helpful thing about the, the Nimitz incident is it's given us another set of better data than anything we ever had before, but it's given us confirmation. Right. That is amazing. And That's, yeah, fascinating. Yeah. All right, so I we're obviously we're we're kind of up against it here and I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I wish we had 3 4 more hours to keep talking about this cuz this is uh, just awesome. Um but I do have one last question for you, which is I've seen in the background there a couple times that you have a, a dog. And I was wondering <laughs> if you wanted to introduce us to the dog cuz we do love pets. Oh, we ha we have a dog. Actually, you can't see in the chair right behind me is a cat. Oh, <laughs> and shadow. The the dog is Sandy. Uh, we have at this point in time one dog inside, three cats inside, and an uncounted number of cats outside. <laughs> <laughs> because we are an undesignated rescue unit. Uh, oh, we live, that's great. We live ten miles out in the country from the closest town of eight hundred people, and people. People routinely dump animals out here, and that's why we routinely end up with animals. Uh, <laughs> when we moved here from Atlanta, uh, we had, we'd already had, always had animals, but we made, made a solemn oath that we wanted to do a lot of traveling, so we didn't want to be tied down by animals. Okay, we moved in here, which actually is the house I grew up in, and within one month, we had a dog and four cats. Uh, and things just, just moved on from there. Yeah, well, that's how it goes. Needless oh, to say, we have not done the amount of traveling that we had. <laughs> well, uh, fair warning, Larry, we are definitely going to call you a friend of the podcast from now on. Yes. And uh, I, we hope to get you back to talk more about some of, the, you know, some of those other things that you've done right. research on. Oh, <laughs> I got so much more I want to talk about. JFK, UFOs, all sorts mm -hmm. of stuff. And well, as you, as you can see, I'm not, you know, I'm not brief in any sense, so I'll be happy to come back. <laughs> awesome. That would be great. I want to, certainly one of the smartest men I've had the pleasure of talking to. I really appreciate it, Larry. Thank um, you so thank much. You again thank, for your time. thank you so much for your time, Larry. We really appreciate it. You taking oh, the time out. I enjoyed it. It's fun. I'll look forward to doing it again. And for the listeners, where can they find your books? Um, all the books are on Amazon. It's Larry Hancock. So it's search Larry Hancock. You'll find two Larry Hancocks. One writes fiction, one writes history. Uh, <laughs> I'm the one that, with the books on history. I, I do have a website, larry-hancock.com, and I have a uh, WordPress blog that you'll just do WordPress, Larry Hancock, and you'll find the blog. The, my most recent, the blog per posting is linked to my profile on Amazon and also my website. My most recent blog posting is about surprise attack and what happened at the Capitol and why we have a systems problem there as well. Ooh. Wow. Well, I'll be reading that yeah, <laughs> after we hang yeah, up with you. Very um, but we also have, uh, we use show notes here. And so uh, for listeners, I'll make sure all that information appears in the doobly-doo as well. So you'll be able to access all of uh, Larry's information. Great. Thank you again so much for, for joining us, Larry. Great. I enjoyed it. We'll see you all later. So we told you, we told you it was good. Thanks again. I know we thanked him like 37 times in the interview, but holy crap. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> yeah, he was amazing. New friend of the pod, Larry Hancock. Who we hope to have back on. Um, I know I said it to him directly, but I mean, I want to talk about 
all of these assassinations. I want to talk about UFOs. I want to talk about 9-11s with this guy. Incredible. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, he said on the podcast that he'd be coming back. And that is a legal contract. It's a verbal contract. Can't get out of it. True. One of the things that especially, I guess, boggled my mind about what he had to say was all of it was a flub, right? That (laughs) (laughs) that James Earl Ray was like screwing everything up (laughs) for the racists (laughs) by killing King and (laughs) how just amusingly incompetent Ray was with, I mean, all these escape attempts and I I think I I made a reference to it, but there's just sort of this like Mr. Magoo element to all of this that I I find, I, I hate to say amusing because it's really dark, but darkly amusing. Right. It's been, it's been 50 years. I think we can see some of the humor now. Uh, it doesn't mean that it wasn't incredibly damaging to the country and to the world. It doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge the fact that these were monsters that were coming after Dr. King. But it is really funny that he kept on not being in the place they tried to put him in. (laughs) It's really funny. That James Earl Ray was like, well, I could use another $90,000. And then they were like, no, you go to hell. And he had to take a bus out of town. Yeah. Like, it's it's really funny. Like, there's there's a bunch of really interesting things about this story. For one thing, this whole interview and talking to Larry has definitely made me really want to go out and pick up all of his books. I mean, I want to read about all this in so much more detail. I want to know... Uh, about these actual conversations that he had. I want to know a little bit more about... I mean, he used the word documents, I don't know how many times. And I want to know what some of those were right. in more detail, you know, that we can't do on a podcast. I'm, so I'm through... I'm a little bit through, like, maybe a third through Killing King right now. And it is interesting because his writing style is similar to his style of speech in that it's so, like, jam-packed full of, like, really interesting information. I feel like we got so much out of the time we spent with him. And I feel the same way about the book. I'll definitely, (laughs) my goal wasn't like to read enough to talk to him. I mean, I guess it kind of was, but like, I'll definitely be finishing uh, Killing King after I'm, uh, after we uh, finish up here. But yeah. Right. And, And we knew that it was, it was racially motivated, but we didn't necessarily know that there were like intermediary steps that there was a guy that was motivated just by making a hundred thousand dollars that there was a bounty and that it was communicated in prison so i mean it changes the the story a little bit but i mean we still know that it was it was about racism and it was about putting civil rights back but i didn't necessarily know that it was about causing the apocalypse which is different it's not that different though <laughs> it's very current um i thought the most interesting part was the part where i needed to come over the catchphrase i hope that we gave you something to think about this week i know i got something a lot to think about this week i got a crazy amount to think about all right love you bye <laughs> bye <laughs> no, I've started doing the bye like Nathan's bye.
I, wow. I can't imagine what it would be like to interview a clan member. Like, <laughs> I think I think that kind of courage is so commendable. Like, yeah, I would not go into that oh, room. There's, that, it would not there's go no well. way. And well, I sent Stu because Stu is a lot younger and a lot faster than I am. And uh, <laughs> it's it's like that thing. How do you get away from a bear in the woods? Like you don't need to be faster than the bear. You just need to be faster than your friend. Yeah. 